0: Everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Basil Darwish, Managing Director and Fintech and Enterprise Tech Lead at Wells Fargo Strategic Capital. Basil started his career in technology as a product engineer and software developer. He later went to Wharton to get his MBA, after which he moved into investment banking at Citi. From 2011 to 2016, he worked as an SVP in Citi Ventures, covering fintech investing and innovation for the bank, including in Singapore, covering Southeast Asia investments. In 2016, Basil was the first hire in Wells Fargo's corporate venture investment practice, helping grow the function in FinTech and expand into adjacent domains. In today's episode, we discuss different corporate venture capital investment models, Wells Fargo's investments into Trivada, H2O.ai, and Arcos Labs, overall FinTech trends that Basil is excited about, and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Basil, and thank you so much for joining us on the Warden FinTech podcast today. We're super excited to have you here. Uh, how are you doing? Where are you calling in from?
1: Hi, road. Pleasure to be here. Uh, excited to be on the Wharton FinTech podcast. I'm based in uh, Silicon Valley in Mountain View, California.
0: Very cool. And let's just jump right into it. So for listeners that may not know, could you just provide an overview of your career to date and talk a little bit about how you became involved in, in FinTech and
1: financial services? Yeah, happy to. Uh, I started my career in technology right at the time when the technology bubble burst in 2001. Back then, I joined a tech startup that emerged out of MIT called Chino Communications. The company's mission was to produce spectrum enhancement technologies by applying modern communication theories on silicon. Very excited domain for someone coming out of grad school. So I I joined them and I I spent some time with that company before I decided to want to go deeper into silicon design. and, And for that, I moved to analog devices where I became a product engineer covering DSPs, back then digital signal processors were were an alternative to GPUs and all the the new innovation that is coming about now, enabling AI and other domains. So uh, from there on, I wanted to move up stack. I went to software development or into software development with my firm. That little gig took me up to Toronto before I moved to Wharton for my MBA. And Wharton was really the ticket into financial services where I came out and got into investment banking. Now, 12 years ago, and even before the the term FinTech was defined, I was with Citigroup back then, and the bank wanted to expand their internal innovation function into venture investing and wanted global coverage for that. So I remember reading a story in The Economist about FASA and mobile money in Africa, and that kind of fascinated me, um, trying to get into that domain and, and contribute to it. So with Citigroup, I moved to Singapore and I covered Southeast Asia, covering both fintech investing and innovation for the bank. It was an eye-opening experience, to be honest, seeing how 600 million people in across Southeast Asia are latching to the idea of innovation to better their lives. So I spent three years there doing venture investments, then um, moved back to Silicon Valley, where with my team, we wanted to expand coverage into tech. So I started getting into adjacent domains that are relevant to banks and enterprise IT domains like cybersecurity, machine learning, AI, and all that. So I spent a few years there before I joined Wolf Vargo. I was the first hire here in what you may call a corporate venture investments practice. The idea was to grow the function in fintech and expand in adjacent domains and been here for six years now. And we're very happy with how much we've scaled and, and what we've achieved in this period. But that's really in kind of in a nutshell how we get intervention investments and um, and particularly fintech and IP. Very
0: cool. And it's interesting you mentioned Mpesa as one of the articles that kind of inspired you to enter the space. That's actually, if I remember correctly, the, the third case that we read when we start. When like you st- you start at Wharton and the first class that everyone takes. That's one of the cases. So it's definitely an interesting company. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your time at City Ventures and kind of compare it and contrast it with Wells Fargo. Do both companies kind of approach their venture investments the same way, or does one look for synergies with the bank versus investing as a standalone activity?
1: Yeah, good question. So as you might know, the corporate venture capital, or you may call it sometimes strategic investments model, has been around for almost 20 years. I think it's continuously evolving and improving and has accelerated in recent years. Now, about my group, maybe in general, before we get to specifics, so at Wells Fargo Strategic Capital, we seek to partner and and invest in visionary founders and CEOs on their journeys to build great companies. In my group's specific focus now on fintech and IT, we also seek to leverage equity investments to bring technology-based innovation into the bank. Now, to your question about what differentiates our fintech investments group from other CBCs in the space... Maybe I'd say that we equally focus on both important points that you mentioned the question. Uh, On one end, organizationally, we are not a separate CVC unit. Um, Rather, we sit in the bank itself, which enables us to be effective in identifying synergies between the companies that we invest in and the rest of the bank, whether on the fintech side or the technology infrastructure side, as mentioned. So from that perspective, I believe we have a meaningful track record. It's always easier to reach out to my colleagues and, and within the bank whenever we see something that could benefit them or could benefit our portfolio companies. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, we still also view our investments as a standalone business activity. We're continuously refining the process, and I believe we now have a streamlined operation, whether it's on the sourcing, analyzing, conducting due diligence, and investing in companies in a timely fashion. One thing maybe unique about our practice that is not generally common in other CVCs is that we also have the flexibility to lead investments, issue term sheets, Pull an investment syndicate together between VCs and corporate VCs and other peer banks into the mix to the extent that it can help our uh, our portfolio company. So that's one one thing. I believe this model where you kind of bring both both uh, worlds of a strategic investments function that you always focus on synergies and and want to materialize and achieve those, but also at the same time kind of the focus or the operation of a financially driven. VC or growth capital operation, because there's aspects or good practices around operations there that we need to have if we were to operate in this space. So kind of net-net, I think you you end up with a model where you hopefully you can run a lean investment operation, effectively execute investments, adjust to the portfolio need, whether equity, debt, et cetera, partner with them on their path to success, but also be able to strategically create value. And honestly, really happy with that later part is not a requirement for our investment. But I would say the vast majority of the companies we've invested in are connected and collaborating with the bank in a way or another.
0: Very cool. And do you at Wells Fargo Strategic Capital have a preference for stage or geography or sectors within fintech that you like to invest in?
1: Yeah. So fintech, if anything, it has grown much, but not that much to be honest. We're from that perspective. We are stage agnostic. We'll participate in early stage to growth equity investments generally, and um, maybe. At or post the company's first institutional funding round. So that's kind of when the product market fit has been achieved. I think that's when we become very much meaningful and beyond that. The investment size typically five to 30 million, flexible in terms of geography. However, in fintech and IT, generally we like to be deeply involved and partner with the companies we invest in. So I would say generally focus on North America and the major venture investments hubs. So far, our companies span. North America, and we have one in the UK on the fintech side.
0: Got it. And I and I have to imagine being part of such a large uh, company like Wells Fargo makes deal flow a little bit easier. Am I right about that? Do, do you find that deals tend to come to you, and people are hoping to make Wells Fargo an adopter of their product?
1: That's a great point. We always kind of discuss with, among us is it uh, how helpful it is, and and etc. I would say, all things considered, it's been beneficial to sit within a large bank from a deal making perspective. When we first started this function. It was mainly on the sourcing side where we bring the companies and introduce them to the bank. I think over the years, I guess, with the word being put out there through the investments we've made and the partnerships that the companies have with the bank, I think kind of the deal flow shifted where we're now seeing some meaningful flow come through the bank. So the fabric we've created, the partnerships within the bank, whether in our peers in innovation and in digital and technology, they bounce ideas by us and we bounce ideas by them. So I would say net-net, been very helpful, particularly in the fintech side, to be part of a large bank operation like
0: that. I've had the the pleasure of having a few different VCs on the show, and I'm always surprised by the range of how they approach different investment opportunities. So some VCs will create a thesis first and then go out looking for companies that kind of match that thesis. Others will uh, wait for companies to come to them. And then once they're compelled by the founder or the space, they'll dive a little bit deeper into it. And I think it varies. It's not even by firm, it's by individual investors. So I'd love to hear your personal philosophy on on how to approach investing.
1: That's a, that's a great point. And I would say, first of all, in venture investing, an investor has to have domain expertise. They really need to know what they're doing, particularly in a domain such as fintech, because it entails value chains that are generally dependent or impacted by an existing market structure. So the investor needs to understand that but also entails a level of regulation that across the various domains of fintech then the investor needs to be aware of. So from a kind of a thesis-driven or not, I think, first of all, the knowledge of the domain needs to be there. Now, that said, being an engineer myself, I say that maybe lean more towards thesis-driven investing. And it's always an exciting moment when I identify that my thesis in a certain domain almost 100% matches or aligns with the vision of a founder that we're about to to invest in. That's kind of the moment where we Kind of makes you. If anything validates your thesis, and then the next level, obviously, is to close the investment and work with the company on the execution side. However, on this topic, maybe I want to I want to mention something important. I don't think the investment thesis gets formed in in the first place in a vacuum. I think over the past ten years, I've benefited of, of being running and being part of a VC function within major banks, where we're seeing, first of all, across several geographies, we see the challenges and we see opportunities where maybe new innovation and new fintech capabilities could come in. So on one end, that guides that thesis development. But however, on the other end, I guess, at the flow of hundreds of fintech startups that we see every year, it feeds into refining that thesis. So it's really, I would say, maybe leaning more thesis driven, however, guide that thesis driven by what we see in the market.
0: Very cool. And one of my favorite activities to do with investors is to dive into a few of your specific investments. I've got three in mind here, so maybe we can talk a little bit about what the thesis was heading into those investments and what compelled you about the team specifically. I would love to start with Trovada, the uh, fintech SaaS for treasury.
1: Yeah, no, happy to. So in the case of Trovara, we led the company's 20 million series A last year, which included participation from a few VCs and other banks. The thesis of the investment is anchored around the future of the CFO office, particularly in the context of small and medium-sized companies. If you think about it, the finance function in a small company entails a few headcount, probably a CFO, VP finance, a controller, support functions, et cetera. Oftentimes the cash reporting, cash reconciliation, and forecasting is manually done in Excel spreadsheets. So as a result, the finance function is generally is generally considered a reporting function, and because of that. Now Truvara automates and modernizes this entire function. The company is cloud-based, SaaS offering and natively built on open banking. By that we mean they connect to multi bank APIs and they come up with technology that makes that very simple to do. Now, if you use those APIs and predictive analytics, feed them into a rich dashboard in the hands of that CFO or small finance function and small company, as mentioned, you you pretty much help automate the treasury management function. You automate the aspect of cash forecasting, particularly when when aspects of predictive analytics and machine learning come in. To further hone in or cue or kind of further improve that process. So, as a, result, as a result, in our view, what excited me about that investment is you suddenly see that the finance function in those small companies turn into an insight driven operation that could guide business strategy versus being a reporting function. In addition to all that, the automation that it brings into the finance function in those small businesses. Now, we're excited about this investment for another reason. Last October, the bank announced a joint go-to-market between Travada and Wells Fargo's commercial and corporate banking, which is really what we're excited about. and looking forward to the next steps on that.
0: You mentioned it's built on open banking infrastructure. And I don't know if the team is, has worked to expand internationally at all. But when I think of open banking, I think of kind of the regulatory difference between the U.S. and Europe and the U.K. Has Travada tried to expand internationally
1: and has that been a challenge for them? A great point, Anurud. So I, I've been tracking open banking for about five, six years now. And I remember when when the regulation came about that in Europe, and kind of part of me was thinking, let's see how that evolves. I think open banking obviously brings a lot of efficiencies into the into the ecosystem. In the US, it's really coming about in the context of efficiency, less to your point about now, just less, less about the the regulations. I think that the product in nature is global because it connects APIs, feed in a portal, produce analytics, etc. The company has plans to go international. They're working on it. Um, but the main focus so far, at least for the time being, is the U.S.
0: Amazing. Uh, let's move on to the next startup then, which is H2O.ai, uh, an enterprise machine learning platform. I uh, would love to hear kind of the same thing, kind of your, your thesis heading into it and, and what the company's working on right now.
1: Yeah, sure. So in regards to H2O, and this has been a deep relationship since we first invested. So we led the company's $40 million Series C, along with NVIDIA in 2017, participated in the two subsequent rounds in the Series B and most recent in $100 million Series E, announced about a month ago. Now, in regards to our investment thesis, I'd say seven, eight years ago, machine learning and AI capabilities related to financial services in general were limited and generally offered by startups as applied AI, maybe let me call it closed box. So the closed box abstracts the technological complexities and offers the point solution. I would say maybe mainly focused back then, those use cases were focused on domains such as fraud detection, um, record reconciliations, and all that. Starting about around 2014, machine learning capabilities became better understood. Corporate America companies across various industries realized that there are certain critical predictive model development and AI application that should be developed and brought in-house. Because it represents a competitive advantage. So, whether that or because of the data needed, the data itself needed to develop or train those models. So, this gave rise to platform AI startups that offer corporates and financial institutions the tools and capabilities to develop their own smart AI applications. So, this development in the market supported our thesis to invest in H2O.ai. The company's mission is to democratize AI by offering corporates across industries the array of software tools they need to develop AI-based applications. So this has really been the thesis, and if anything, I see it validated year over year with more and more companies, again, across industries, across corporate America, are all trying to initiate programs within their companies to develop and roll out smart applications.
0: I I was working in consulting before uh, joining business school and there was a large initiative at the company I was at to improve kind of not so much machine learning, but general automation of tasks for consultants. And I have to imagine an H2O.AI type platform would be very useful for that. Um, So definitely agree. There's a lot of money being spent in the space right now. Last startup I wanted to talk about was Arcos Labs. Uh, I have to imagine this is particularly useful for a bank like Wells Fargo. It's a company that helps protect against account takeover attacks. Could we talk a little bit about uh, why you chose to invest in them?
1: Yeah, sure. This is uh, also a recent investment. We invested in the most recent 70 million CRSC. Arcus is a leading fraud prevention company in my in my view. The thesis behind the investment is that the digital world and utilization of online services will continue to rapidly increase. If anything, COVID is providing strong tailwinds to support all that. So whether online banking, online gaming, any cloud-based SaaS software and e-commerce travel, you name it, At some point, you're going to be using a portal, logging into that portal, utilizing that service, et cetera. So the company offers a fresh and effective approach, in my view, in this domain. They shift the mindset from fraud prevention to fraud deterrence. And I really like how they use that term because what they do is really they deliver long-term fraud prevention and account security by undermining the underlying economic drivers behind attacks. They basically break the unit economics of those attackers, whether it's a bot. Trying to conduct an account take over, et cetera. So this is really the thesis. I think back to the point around the growth in online services, the more of that that happens, the more the need for technologies and capabilities like this one.
0: Haven't heard of that approach to fraud prevention or fraud deterrence, as you mentioned. Are they essentially trying to make it more expensive
1: for hackers to take over accounts? This is exactly it. You, you mm. analyze the anatomy of the, how the attack happens. And then in real time, you decide how to make it expensive. And then at some point, the value chain would break. And I guess at that point, the bad guy would move to the next target.
0: If I had to guess, I would say the founders might have studied economics in undergrad. Just
1: a hunch. Uh, phenomenal person. And if anything, became a personal friend. And again, really excited about the, the prospect here because of the fresh mm. take on how fraud prevention should be done.
0: I bet you have a unique lens on, on this next question, which is, frequently you hear about banks shifting their mindsets towards fintech companies, maybe 10 years ago, uh, they weren't as willing to partner with these companies, and more recently, they are have become more willing. Have you seen that kind of shift either from your time at Citi or, or here at Wells Fargo?
1: And you're talking maybe fintech in specific, or are you talking just uh, startups in general?
0: That's a good question. I, I was talking fintech specifically, but if you've seen a change in either, that'd be, that'd be interesting
1: to hear. Uh, yeah, no, no. happy to add this. The, the way. This is the most recent wave of fintech, let's say, over the past 10, 15 years. I would say, if anything, the, I see the model maturing in a healthy way. I'm, I'm seeing way more fintech companies now that come forward and say, we're really good at certain things, but we'd also love to partner with a bank or a financial institution or an asset manager because collectively we could achieve ABC. And I'm seeing willingness on both ends now. To maybe work together way more than the first wave in maybe 2010, 2011, when this whole started. So, if anything, part of it is the excitement about the future in this industry because ultimately the goal is to serve customers better, whether from a fintech perspective or a financial institution perspective. And I'm seeing more and more ways of, of both kind of domains coming together and partnering uh, on that. There used to be that term of debundling and rebundling of financial institutions. I don't think that, honestly, if anything, needs to apply. Ultimately, the partnership could happen in a meaningful way to serve customers, uh, both on both ends.
0: And let's continue zooming out a little bit and looking at the industry as a whole. Um, I would love to hear which specific sectors within fintech you're most excited to see grow and play out over the next three to five years.
1: So in fintech, I think two domains that come to mind, very much like the B2B fintech space, I think there used to be much attention on the B2C side. And I'm seeing much growth now on the B2B fintech side, things that In the domains such as treasury management, payables, receivables, reconciliations, and all that. So that's one angle. Um, The other angle on the maybe retail side is on the um, vertically integrated payments. It's a theme. By that, what I mean is removing the friction and embedding innovative payment solution seamlessly in a use case itself, whether it's paying a healthcare bill or paying rent or et cetera, in a way that improves the customer experience. It becomes a one-stop shop where you're getting the service and the payments embedded in that. So this is a theme that I very much like. We have a company in our portfolio called Greenlight that is focused on financial literacy for kids where payments is seamlessly embedded in the solution. And I think this is applicable in other domains as well. Now, we also focus on enterprise software. One of the growing areas of focus for us is cybersecurity. There has been a kind of a new security paradigm in the industry for a while called zero trust environment where you assume your infrastructure, is no trust there and you need to secure it at every level. So I'm starting to see from a venture investing perspective more capabilities now coming and actually delivering on this new paradigm and we're excited about the prospects there and the investments that we could make. The, the, The next wave maybe or at least what we're seeing now into the short to medium term is AI and machine learning coming into the cybersecurity space and enabling that ability of tracking activity, surfacing any outliers and enabling that zero-trust environment protection.
0: My experience with zero-trust environment is that it puts a decent amount of burden on, on the user. So if you could find a company that manages to streamline the, the user journey, uh, that'd be greatly appreciated.
1: This is a great point because to the point about AI and machine learning, so to the extent only show up the, or only enable certain protection, et cetera. And if you suspect enough using intelligent machine intelligence, that there is something that needs to be flagged. So, but a very, I completely see what you're saying, and and this is the whole idea of capabilities that are usable, but at the same time wouldn't wouldn't negatively affect the user experience or the operational efficiency.
0: On the flip side of the previous question, are there any verticals within fintech that you're a little bit bearish on, or or maybe if a startup operates in that space, they need to have a higher burden of proof for you to get excited about them?
1: Great point. I wouldn't say necessarily bearish, but maybe. I see there's a current hype around the buy now, pay later domain. And I see it now not only in e-commerce, I can see it in physical goods, I see it in healthcare. So purely from a venture investment perspective, I would say I'd like to see how this domain plays out on the medium term if we were to ever consider from an equity investment.
0: Yeah, I think for, for buy now, pay later, it's very important that those companies can show that users that use the product are still financially healthy going forward. And that, that yep. is simply a function of time for uh, you know, to get an answer to that question.
1: Completely agree. I think the technology strengthens over time and it improves, but it's just uh, one domain that I'm, I'm curious to see how it plays out.
0: Amazing. Um, so the last thing I wanted to do today was just ask you a few rapid-fire questions to help the uh, listeners get to know you a little bit better. Hoping to get answers here in 10 seconds or less. Are you ready to go? <laughs> sure. Let's do it. Uh, what is your favorite hobby?
1: Um, I would say hikes with My Daughters.
0: Nice. Uh, what is something that most people don't know about you?
1: How I landed in venture investments. It's uh, it's a long story. So it, but this is really something maybe we'll catch up on <laughs> at some point later. Uh, what was the last movie you watched? And nothing recent, to be honest, comes to mind. But I do read uh, a lot. I'm, I'm now reading actually a book called The No Rules Rule uh, by Reed Hastings. I don't know if you read it. It's a phenomenal book so far on organizational behavior and how to enable innovation.
0: Very cool. I'll have to check it out. Last question for you. You can take a little bit longer on this if you'd like. Uh, What are you most looking forward to in 2022?
1: I would say just, just seeing this most recent wave of COVID, I would say hopefully... It debates and we we get to a, maybe an operating model that is, if anything, it's for the younger ones to be able to get back to normalcy. So I'm kind of almost looking forward to uh, improvements on that front. I mean, it's not in our control, but we all do our best.
0: Yeah, you mentioned you have daughters, and it, it, I'm guessing they're in of school age, so it's definitely tough for for, for people going to school right now to make yeah. to kind of uh, live a that's normal.
1: That said, they've done very well on Zoom. I was impressed by how effective. <laughs> It, yep. At least the older one have been, been able to sit through uh, Zoom classrooms for uh, for six, seven hours a day.
0: Yeah, sometimes better able to adapt than certainly I was with Zoom classrooms.
1: Right, absolutely. <laughs>
0: yeah. Basil, it's been an absolute pleasure today to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining. Love the insights on a few of those investments that you've made and uh, your career journey. Uh, so thanks again.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Always uh, always happy to uh, engage with Wart and work with your club. So uh, thanks again for the invite. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our Fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel, and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Wharton Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.